0: From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast,
1: this is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report. Here's what we're working on today. Back to childhood.
2: He never tired of exploring the cave.
1: We head to a place that Tom, Becky, and Sam love to visit along the American countryside. Is the end of inflation near and are we heading into a recession?
0: we're either in a recession or we're very close to it.
1: As drought concerns grow in the heartland, we look
3: at the root zone here, extremely dry.
1: Our panel discusses what these issues could
4: mean for the markets. And in John's world, it's about refineries, not tankers.
1: Welcome to U.S. Farm Report. I'm Clinton Griffiths, and for Tyne Morgan, who's on vacation this week. Well, another derecho tore through the heartland. The powerful storm carving a path through South Dakota, as well as Minnesota and Iowa. The storm carrying heavy rain, hail, and powerful winds. Ahead of it, ominous scenes. Green skies were spotted north of Sioux Falls. VH storm chasers clocking 80-mile-per-hour winds just north of Crook, South Dakota, during this storm. Now, they say... Many cornfields around that area were flattened. Steve Lounsbury, farms just west of Crooks and Montrose, he took these pictures of what happened to his fields. Now he believes the corn will stand back up. As for beans, he's concerned about the impact on yields. And south of Sioux Falls in Lincoln County, a similar story at Jim Gibbons Farm. He's hoping the corn will recover in up to 10 days. Now he says the rain there was good for the beans. This is the third derecho to hit the Sioux Falls area since 2020. But USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says this latest storm wasn't as severe as the one that hit back in August of 2020. Taking a look at damaging winds recorded in 2020 compared to Tuesday's storm, he says South Dakota appears to have borne the brunt of the storms this week. Now the highest winds were recorded near Huron, South Dakota at 96 miles per hour. Farmers in the Midwest have seen some timely rains as of late, but it wasn't enough to improve crop conditions overall. Corn condition, now ranked 64% good to excellent. That's down 3% from last week. Soybeans, in at 63% good to excellent. That's down 2% from last week. Meanwhile, winter wheat harvest is now 54% completed. That's 6% ahead of average. A gauge of the farm economy is raising red flags this month. The Ag Economy Barometer from Purdue University and the CME Group shows farmers continue to worry about the future. Now, The Ag Economy Barometer fell in June, to a reading of 97. That's down a couple of points from May, pushed lower by farmers' pessimism about the future. Half of farmers say they expect their farms to be worse off a year from now. Input costs have, have increased dramatically uh, in 22, and they're very concerned about that
5: continuing uh, into 2023. Uh, uh, the second uh, most commonly common answer was availability of inputs, 21% were very concerned about the availability of inputs. If we had asked that availability of input question last year, uh, that wouldn't have even been on their radar uh, probably, but given all the, all the concerns we've had in the last few months about availability of herbicide, insecticide, parts, fertilizer to some extent,
1: uh, that is a concern of a lot of producers." The surveyors say producers were somewhat more optimistic about current conditions this month, but that improvement was more than offset by weaker expectations for the future. The Federal Reserve is signaling much higher interest rates could be needed to restrain inflation. Minutes released this week from last month's meeting show that Fed officials are concerned that consumers were starting to anticipate higher inflation. They also acknowledged rate hikes could weaken the economy, but they suggested such steps were necessary to slow price increases back to the Fed's 2% annual target. Members also saying following this month's meeting there could be another 50 to 75 basis points worth of increases. The latest land purchased by billionaire Bill Gates is getting a stamp of approval from North Dakota's Attorney General. As we told you last month, the Gates-linked Red River Trust purchased the farmland in Pembina County. That's about 50 miles from the Canadian border. The state's Republican Attorney General, Drew Wrigley, asked the trust to explain how it will satisfy the state's anti-corporate farming law. Now, Wrigley issuing a letter saying the deal complied with the law because the land is being leased back to farmers. The Microsoft co-founder is considered the largest private owner of farmland in the country. (laughs) It's anticipated farmers in Ukraine will harvest 50 million tons of grain in October. Now, that forecast coming from the country's first Deputy Minister of Agrarian Policy and Food. The number is well below the 85 million tons it produced last year, but still above expectations. And he says that Ukraine will have to export at least 30 million tons of that grain. The country, it's still working to create a Black Sea Corridor in order to move grain blocked due to Russian blockades. Turkey's president saying a deal could be close. He says potential routes have already been identified and a working group has been established. The missing element? A final agreement from the Kremlin. Japan has said it will pay for a $17 million project to help Ukrainian farmers store their grain in temporary shelters and help the government develop alternate transport routes for grain exports. (laughs) Heat, humidity, and severe weather found its way to farm country this week. We'll check on the week ahead with meteorologist Matt Urasani.
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Enzone from Farm Shop MFG, which allows you to rehydrate your soybeans from 10 to 13% on a 20,000 bushel bin. That's an extra semi-load added to your bottom line. Order your Enzone fan by July 31st and get $200 off.
1: The Great Salt Lake in Utah has also dropped to its lowest level on record. The lake's surface water elevation fell to 4,190 feet over the weekend. That's below the previous record low set back in July of last year. The state now calling for urgent action to preserve the land. From a derecho to triple-digit heat, it's been a week for weather. Meteorologist Maggie Rosavik joins us with a look ahead. Matt, parts of the country seeing some rain this past week, but was it enough to impact the areas where a flash drought has been developing?
3: Yeah, Clinton, that's something that we continue to keep an eye on there across most of the east and into the southeast, the chances for that flash drought. And if we look at the root zone here, extremely dry up through the upper Midwest, parts of the Corn Belt here, back into the mid-Atlantic states and into the southeast, where you do see not as much moisture as we had in the last couple of months is down here right through the Mississippi River Valley. And that's where things are starting to dry out as well. But over the next 10 days, expecting a lot more precipitation here, especially across the southeast with some tropical moisture and a couple stalled out fronts. So hopefully we'll get some improvement there with this root zone, but also with those drought conditions as well. Something that we'll keep an eye on, though, is the Corn Belt with uh, some stress being put on those crops with a lack of moisture. Hopefully we'll start to see some of that. Also we've seen a lot more blue here in Arizona and New Mexico still very dry though through uh, most of the West And then the Pacific Northwest doing very well right now, but we'll continue to keep an eye on that. So here's a look at that drought monitor released on Thursday, and you can see those drought conditions continue to grow in the east. Meanwhile, much of the same in the west. Haven't seen much, uh, much uh, worse conditions there in the west, but also haven't seen much improvement in the last month either. So something that we will continue to keep an eye on. Here's a look at the jet stream as we head through this week. Look at that ridge starting to build back farther to the west and what that's going to do is keep it very active here in the east and also give a little bit of a break from that extreme heat and the humidity that we've been dealing with. Meanwhile, right along into the Rockies, the Four Corners region and right up through the middle of the country, still going to be steamy as we head through the second half of the week and that continues into next weekend as well as that ridge even goes farther into the northern. Southern Plains there, maybe bringing in more heat and humidity all the way up into the Dakotas and places in the upper Midwest as well. Something that will continue to keep an eye on, especially for the second half of this upcoming week. Still warm and humid across the east. Stalled out fronts here are going to be the main story with more tropical precipitation down there in the southeast. Storm system moving into the Great Lakes could bring uh, some much needed rain there. And then some more scattered showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon heat there in the Four Corners region. Meanwhile, high pressure in control for most of the southwest, especially, or the northwest, especially as we head into Wednesday. Still some of those isolated storms in the afternoon there in Arizona, New Mexico, and then another front across to the east and that's going to bring another chance for some rain and then heading into Friday. Notice that rain doesn't go very far. Those stalled out fronts keeping around that tropical precipitation. High pressure, though, keeping the heat and the sunshine out over most of the country as another storm system enters the Pacific Northwest as we head into next week. So that's something we'll keep an eye on. Temperatures this week, though, above normal in the west and across the south but turning more normal in the east. And then here's a look at that precipitation. It's going to be above normal across the east and through much of the south, and we'll keep an eye on that right here on U.S. Farm Report, and we'll give you another update next week. Clinton, back to you.
1: All right, thanks, Matt. Markets spent the week battling weather and recession fears. Farm Journal's Michelle Rook digs into the action
6: next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Joining us this weekend, Jim McCormick, AgMarket.net, and John Heinberg with Total Farm Marketing. We started the week with a continuation of fund liquidation, recessionary fears, trying to recover into the end of the week. So, John, is fund liquidation over here?
7: I'd like to hope it's slowed down, at least at this stage. And again, you know, with the corn market, in terms of how those funds were acting, they're falling last year pretty much to a script, You've See this continued pullback. Now, I did see them turn the corner again after the 4th of July, at least start adding some value back in. You know, so we had the hard sell-off on the 5th, obviously a thin trading day. You know, that's kind of the clean out day. Plus, it's the day they report for the you know CFTC and the commitment of traders report. So so maybe we're seeing a little bit of a turn here. But, you know, funds are a big ship. They don't turn things around quickly. You know, that keeps me a little cautious of the market. If we get some rally up, which we've obviously had here the last couple of days, that might bring some more selling or some more long liquidation back into the market on those positions. So hopefully we are there, but we're going to need some news events and something to possibly turn that and make that money want to flow back into the market overall.
6: And Jim, when you look at what the Fed is proposing to do in the Fed Minute meetings, and then the payroll of unemployment was like 3.6% here on Friday, that kind of gives the Fed more impetus to really raise rates here, doesn't it?
8: Exactly. I think right now it's almost a guarantee they're going to raise the rates three-quarters of a point in July. And you know what that's going to do is that's going to continue to keep the fund money on the sidelines. We believe when the Fed came out last month in June and essentially said, hey, We're going to raise interest rates. Our job is to kill off demand. Killing off demand drives down the demand for commodities. A lot of that money left the markets here the last couple weeks, and uh, with this uh, hot jobs number better than a lot of people thought, it probably is just going to give a reason to keep that money on the sidelines. I think you could see some regular ag trading funds come back in, Michelle, if the weather would start to really get warm and dry, like some of the models are suggesting.
6: So, John, is the high in for the year, those contract highs?
7: at least at this point, you know, especially given some of the numbers that we're seeing out there, maybe some of the demand concerns, recessionary play and just the pullback in the commodity space in general, I'm going to say at least at this time frame. But obviously, you know, weather still trumps all and obviously we got to see what happens in terms of the geopolitical side of things. You know, those headlines that can pop anytime can obviously bring that money flow back into the market. We're just going to stay volatile and, you know, kind of agreeing with uh, uh What Jim was saying there, too, we're watching what's going to happen with these weather models. If we do see some production losses, the global supplies are still tight in the grain world, and we could see that money flow back in. But at least at this time frame, it feels that way.
6: So, Jim, is weather enough to push us to those levels and retest those highs there? I mean, it does look hot and dry in the end of July. You had the drought monitor out on Thursday, and it showed expanding drought.
8: I think, you know, the weather can give us a really good push. I mean, a lot of areas in the Midwest did get rain this past week. That kind of took some of the edge off. The models are getting dry. So I do think we can get a pretty good push retracement. But the reality is I think, Michelle, it has been very, very hard to justify going back to the, the emotional peak that we, that we saw when the market was trading inflation. They were trading the war, and they are trading the uncertainty of the weather. With the inflation trade, I think, onto the sidelines, Uh, I think the highs are in unless something really changes dramatically. And right now that's not in the cards. They're looking for a little bit warmer, drier bias into the latter part of July, but not a complete shutdown of the weather, you know, rain across the Midwest.
6: So you mentioned the war and wheat has had the biggest correction, obviously over $5 off of the contract highs here. John, it looks like we've taken all the war premium out. Do we need to put some of that back in?
7: I still think we need to bring some of that back in. Yeah, you know, we, obviously markets can sometimes swing, uh, you know, like Jim was saying, based on extremes. Again, emotional trade, just momentum trade. This thing turned into a momentum trade to the downside. You know, we've seen some improvement in some of the areas in terms of global production. You know, the Russian wheat crop looks very, very strong, you know, but then we got to still see how things play out. You know, again, we're still watching for some concerns regarding food issues globally and wheat being down. You know, yesterday's was sub eight dollars at the start of the day you know, coming back through that here today. Uh, Just show us that. So obviously, I think we've taken it too far to the downside. We need to bring some things back in. But again, you know, those highs from what we saw probably in the spring are kind of out the window at this time frame, barring some true events.
6: So if the highs are in for the year, what do you do for marketing? And how does recession maybe impact the livestock complex? We'll talk about that when we come back on U.S. Farm Report.
1: Oil futures fell below $100 per barrel this week before heading higher. That follows the highly-traveled 4th of July weekend. Now, The national average in at $4.77 per gallon, that's roughly 25 cents off its record high set last month when prices topped 5 bucks. Diesel, only about a dime lower. John Phipps, well, he shares his perspective on the lingering pain at the pump.
4: Infuriating price increases are the topic of the day, but like the 80s, rising inflation is largely driven by energy. The price of oil is a huge factor in about everything we buy. Oddly enough, it is now less about the supply of oil and more about refining capacity. Refining capacity starts with the number of operable plants, which has been slowly falling for years. The pandemic oil demand plunge prompted some closure of some refineries, especially older, less efficient ones. Starting up a shutdown plant is a long and difficult process, so industry analysts doubt any of them will ever reopen. Now, add in a hurricane in Louisiana and an explosion in Philadelphia plant, and our capacity to refine is at an eight-year low. Keep in mind, there has not been a new refinery built since the 1970s in the U.S. The operating plants are running at historically high levels as well. Now, imagine you're an oil executive and your financial staff just brought you the latest profit figures shown here, and your neighbor took delivery of a Rivian electric pickup. What possible logic would make you consider building or even upgrading any of your refineries? Whether we think EVs are the future or not, the oil industry is looking at the car industry and sees a future of stagnant, if not falling, demand. The amount of oil available and the price is, of course, a factor, but it sure hasn't hurt refiners' profits, so why do anything other than milk this elderly cash cow as long as possible? The implication for me is it's hard to imagine gas prices falling much without a pretty stiff recession stifling demand. For that matter, if fuel demand should decline, I think refiners will simply accelerate plant closures. Investors agree and would not reward an oil company for building or upgrading new capacity. The refinery bottleneck also means efforts to increase the oil supply may not have as much effect as we think. It's like getting a bigger combine when trucking capacity is your real problem. The switch to EVs will not be as rapid as many think, and even less so in rural America. But we're close enough to the peak of oil demand for transportation at least to have a big impact on long-term plans in almost all sectors. And by the way, I saw my first local Rivian and have neighbors on the list for electric F-150s. At the same time, solar panel installations are popping up at farms like water hemp high-energy prices can change attitudes. All right, thanks, John. Now, if you'd like to
1: watch more of John's world, use this QR code with your smartphone. All right, when we come back, Machinery Pete and a beautiful Massey 55.
5: Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. Come with me this week. We're headed
4: to Indiana to check out a Massey Harris 55.
5: This tractor here has special meaning to me. Uh, Those that know me, I'm an IH guy. But as you see, this is a Massey Harris. Well, in 2015, I got a phone call and the guy knew I was interested in it. And I hooked my truck to my trailer and went eight miles over here to his place. And within three hours after that phone call, that tractor was sitting here in my driveway. Why did your dad get rid of it? He uh, a, wanted a new one. My dad was one of those guys that never kept anything. When it was wore out, he traded it in. And uh, that's just the way he was. A lot, of far, a lot of old-time farmers, they just parked it in a fence row. And some nephews that still farm. And I've got a son that doesn't farm. I've got a grandson that he's not going to be interested in farming or he's not interested in the tractors really at all. I hope it stays in the family somehow.
1: All right, thanks, Pete. Love it. Now, if you'd like to watch more tractor tales, use that QR code on the screen with your smartphone. But hey, don't leave. We have plenty of U.S. Farm Reports still to come is an economic recession weighing on commodity markets. Michelle Rook takes a deep dive into what it means for agriculture next in our Farm Journal Report. Plus, take a tour of the cave that inspired Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn as we travel the American countryside with Andrew McCrae.
0: U.S. Farm Report
8: is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.
1: Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report, trusted,
0: timely, tradition.
1: Thanks for joining us for the second half hour of U.S. Farm Report. I'm Clinton Griffiths, in for Tyne Morgan. Well, the last few weeks have been rather brutal for many of the commodity markets as grains, cotton, and others have seen a sell-off from historical highs. But is this evidence yet that inflation has peaked or that the economy is moving into a recession? Michelle Rook takes a closer look at this week's Farm Journal report.
6: Clinton, for several months, hedge funds bought commodities as a hedge against inflation. But the last few weeks, they started a massive liquidation on recessionary fears tied to the Fed's aggressive rate hikes. So is the U.S. in a recession? And if it is, will funds continue to liquidate and pull down the commodity markets? I talked to some market and economic experts to get their take. Recently, the agricultural markets have been driven more by money flow at times than fundamentals. A J.P. Morgan Chase commodity strategist says about $15 billion moved out of commodity futures markets just during the week ending June 24th. This was the fourth straight week of outflows, bringing the total for the year to around $125 billion. That was a seasonal record that tops even 2020.
9: We're seeing the funds get out. uh, The the path of least resistance is down and and, uh, that means sell and kind of ignore everything else.
6: The macroeconomic picture spooked the hedge funds as the inflation bubble bursts and recessionary fears climb.
7: They just decided, I don't want to be long anymore I think the recession fears are, are really
9: starting to spike higher. Does that fund, that money manager, does he want to throw money at something like that when there's probably something else that in his view is a safer, better place to ride out the recession and like an interest-bearing instrument perhaps.
6: Fund liquidation has also pulled wheat prices down to pre-war levels.
9: And I think the, the worst of them all was, uh, quite frankly, has been the last two weeks of the complete uh, Uh, destruction of the wheat market. And wheat pretty much led this market to the upside and it's now leading it to the downside.
6: So is speculative selling in commodities done? Maybe short term, but analysts say longer term, it may depend on future Fed action and recovery in the equity and energy sectors, even cryptocurrencies.
9: I'm worried that uh, mismanagement is going to cause this recession to get quite a bit deeper that things like crude oil, which are just now breaking out to the downside, uh, have a lot more downside pressure to go. And that's going to lean heavily on uh, on agricultural markets as well. Uh, But the fear now is that the Fed pushes too hard, uh, even as inflation starts to back down. And then we slow down the economy. And we've already seen indications that we are slowing the economic activity. And uh, then you get into periods of, of extended recession potentially.
6: But is the U.S. in a recession? This week's Fed Minutes indicate they're looking at further rate hikes this year to tame inflation and are optimistic they can do it without sending the economy into recession. But is it already too late?
0: We're either in a recession or we're very close to it. The Atlanta Federal Reserve announced just last week that we are in a recession. They said the their indications, their readings are that quarter two GDP was negative, and that's that. Combine that with quarter one's GDP uh, growth that was also negative. So th- those readings alone would tell you we are in a recession.
6: Other key indicators include equity indices moving into bear market territory and an inverted curve on treasuries.
0: The stock market is telling us, hey, this is not good. The bond market, as you said, negative, uh, uh, negative yield curve. That's the short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. And, of course,
9: that's not good
6: plus a sell-off in certain commodities generally provides an early clue.
9: Well, cotton and copper are two of those leading indicators and and they would tell you definitely we're contracting this economy, we're headed for a recession.
6: Goss doesn't think a recession will last long and agriculture will be more insulated. However, demand destruction is possible, especially if the dollar stays at 20-year highs.
5: A recession
0: uh, affects demand for everything, potentially. And that includes includes food at uh, both ends of the scale. And what's going on there, Michelle, is the value of the dollar is going up, 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 up. And particularly against the Japanese yen, even against the euro, the dollar is, is gaining strength. And that's not a good thing if you're trying to sell U.S. goods.
6: So does this mean an end to the bull market or is it just taking a pause? And what will it take to bring speculative buying interest back into the commodities?
9: It might be that the prices just get cheap enough where they look like a value buy again. It might be some macroeconomic event. Event. It might be some weather event. Something like that. But something's going to have to flip the switch. So it have to be something big like QE or Russia or something ar- around. You know, crude oil going to 180 or something like that. But short of that, I just don't see how we get a rally other than one to sell.
6: Until then, some commodities like grains and cotton may have put in their highs for the year. As far as the Fed action, their June meeting minutes released on Wednesday indicated they're poised to raise rates in July by either one-half to three-quarters of a percent. And further action is appropriate if elevated inflation pressures were to persist. All right,
1: thanks, Michelle. Now stay with us. Michelle will continue that market conversation after the break as we have part two of our marketing roundtables. Registration is
10: open for the 2022 Pro Farmer Crop Tour. Join our team as we gain insight on the 2022 growing season in person or online. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you.
6: Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Jim McCormick and John Heinberg are joining us this weekend. We talked the first half of the show about how these markets really aren't treating the fundamentals. We've seen massive fund liquidation. One fundamental thing that we're looking at, though, coming up here, the Tuesday WASDE report. Let's talk about that. And what are we expecting? Will we see that lower soybean acreage number mean a bullish number there in terms of ending stocks, Jim?
8: I think you will see the, the bean number is probably going to be the big surprise. They got to make an adjustment with that acreage number that came out in June. So when they make that adjustment, that will drop the, the carryout below 200 million without a demand re- revision. So we do anticipate what they'll do is try to offset that. They'll cut demand a little bit and pretty much put this carryout, Michelle, right a little bit around 200 million, 205 million, which is pretty much unchanged year on year. Now where that gets really tricky is can we manage a 51.5 bushel yield to keep that going? Because if we don't, see that yield and all of a sudden you really got to get into demand rationing mode we believe if that yield would start to slip on the corn side of the equation uh not a lot of surprises on the quality grain stock report as well as the acreage so we don't look for a huge revision on the on the corn side but it's something we need to keep an eye on you know the balance sheets working with a 177 trend yield that's a record yield if this heat starts to really hit in as we mentioned the first segment going into the middle part of july Pollination starts taking a toll. These yields fall four or five bushels. The corn carryout project could easily fall below a billion bushels, and that would have the market having to move back into a rationing mode, especially if you can't get this grain out of the Ukraine.
6: Well, Dunn, it looked like we didn't really trade the acreage and quarterly stocks report that day. Do we actually trade the report on Tuesday here? And what about the August report when we start figuring in some of these lower acres and the resurvey?
7: Yeah, that's going to be the interesting part of that. And, you know, what Jim was mentioning, too, with that soybean market, you know, do we put those acres in from the, the green or the acreage report, and you know, it is going to tighten up that balance sheet. You know, we start talking 200 million bushels at this time frame with a potential warmer forecast in front of us. You know, some weather concerns the market may do that now. Again, do they believe the numbers? What's the estimates going to be down the road? You know, that may be a little bit of a limiting factor just until we get confirmation on the acreage number from the you know, from that resurvey. So, uh, to me, you know, again, we've right now we're the whole move after the acreage report came out was more on that technical side, fund liquidation, end of the month, end of the quarter type trade with follow through after the fourth. Uh, so now maybe you'll see those numbers and maybe realize that things are still extremely tight, especially in that soybean market you know, with the potential weather in front of us.
6: So, if we believe the highs are in for the year, what do we do for marketing if you missed it, Jim?
8: Well, I think you got to just prepare to, you know, what you need to do is kind of recalibrate your thinking. The reality is the pro- highs are in, but the profit levels are still very, very well, especially compared to historical numbers. You're still looking at corn over $6. So I think what you got to do is recalibrate your, what your pricing are, get a better handle where, where you think your yields are, and redo the math. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Yes, they're off the highs, but the profitability is there, and you need to take advantage of it. The reality is the economy is slowing down. And demand eventually is going to slow down. If we end up with a big crop in South America, no matter what our crop does, we're probably going to see this market end up working lower. History tells us, Michelle, when we have big surges like this, it usually tends to put in multiple year highs. We're encouraging people to even take a serious look in the 2023 crops because, uh, you know, history says that they won't take out their highs as well.
6: John, what about the livestock sector? Cattle, um, cash up into seven-year highs, but can the board and cash continue to advance here with the recessionary fears?
7: You know, that's a major headwind over top the market and in, in terms of the cattle se- sector overall. You know, you got cash still trade above the board at this time frame it's trying to at least kind of hang in there but again it just feels like the speculative money doesn't want to reach out here because of those recessionary fears and what we can have down the road you know i'm still long-term friendly the cattle market the numbers continue to prove that cow slaughter continues to run at well above average paces that's just getting tightening up the supply we're starting to see some of that impact even in the current cash trade in the cash market now between the difference between the north and the south you know so at least at this time frame you know we're working maybe to our typical summer high here in this window You know, we still got a lot of cattle here in front of us overall. Weights are down. The weather might be another factor to help out with that if it does turn hotter again across cattle country. Uh, But at this time frame, yeah, board still feels like it's not quite where it needs to be, at least in terms of value compared to what we're seeing in the cash market for both lives and feeders.
6: John Heinberg, Jim McCormick, thanks so much for your insight this week. More U.S. Farm Report coming up.
1: I once visited the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford, Connecticut, a beautiful home, including the space where Twain himself sat to write many of his literary masterpieces. Now, some of those adventures began decades earlier, as Andrew McRae explains from the American countryside.
10: In the winter of 1819, a natural entrance to a cave was found just south of Hannibal, Missouri. Locals came from time to time to see the interesting place one of those visitors in the early 1840s was a young resident of the Rivertown who was fascinated by what he saw.
2: Sam Clemens as a boy came into the cave to explore. In his own words, in his autobiography, he said he tired of most everything he did, but he never tired of exploring the cave.
10: Vicki Vale knows this place well. She leads tours of what is today known as Mark Twain Cave. Through the early and mid-1800s, it was mostly just local residents who came to the cave to explore for fun. Mark Twain, the author, changed that.
2: But it wasn't until the publication of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer in 1886 that the locals noticed an increase of tourists from other locations, not just from the nation, but also from around the world.
10: Those tours continue today, with people still coming to the cave immortalized in the novel Tom Sawyer. While Twain's works were mostly fiction, they resonated with readers.
2: So the people and maybe some loosely the events were inspired by real happenings, but the dramatic element and the uh, spectacle of all of it, uh, that was definitely Mark Twain's genius.
10: (laughs) A visit here and you can imagine Tom Sawyer and Becky Thatcher getting lost in the narrow passages of this cave, but it was also on the approximate six miles of cave walls that visitors began immortalizing their tour. Prior to National Landmark designation in 1972, you could sign your name, and many people did.
2: Well, we, may, we don't know exactly who the, some of these people are. We know that they're a part of our story as well. And so we have estimated about 250,000 signatures throughout the Mark Twain Cave.
10: They knew the author had signed his name to a wall, but with so many crooks and crannies, they could never find it
2: the signature of Samuel Clements. That was found in the summer of 2019, so very recently, Uh, always expected to be found.
10: Signature analysis was used to verify what had long been searched for. It was a unique tie, uniting the author back to the cave he'd explored as a child and written about as an adult. There are certainly caves that are larger with more grandeur than this one. However, it is the story behind this cave that makes it special, because visitors who come here realize the adventures of Mark Twain all began right here. Traveling the countryside in Hannibal, Missouri, I'm Andrew McRae.
1: Thanks, Andrew. If you want to watch more of these American countryside stories, use the QR code on the screen with your smartphone to see more. Up next, customer support with John Phipps. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's July 19th online auction. No reserve, no buyer
10: fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypete.com
1: These days, it's not uncommon for landowners to get a card in the mail asking them to consider a wind or solar lease. But is green energy really green? John Phipps takes a shot at answering that question in this week's customer support. From
4: Wayne Lindsmeyer in Auburndale, Wisconsin, one question keeps coming to mind when everyone keeps talking about green energy such as solar and wind. What is the true cost of manufacturing these green energies, byproducts, and waste? Are they truly green? I'm all for the idea, just wish they would explain it better. Oh Wayne, this is a question with no good clear answer. Scientists have tried to examine the entire energy production system, including manufacturing, etc., to see how each type of energy ranks. Other scientists then dispute the results. For example, recently researchers at the University of Wisconsin took another look at ethanol, which I thought we were all tired of arguing about. They found it wasn't as good for the environment as we have originally thought. In fact, it's worse than fossil fuels. So why can't scientists agree? First, what they have to figure out What is the criteria we're going to keep score by? Fewer carbon emissions, energy efficiency, cost, etc. There are several shades of green, so to speak, depending on what yardstick is used. Second, how big do you draw the circle around the system itself? The UW scientists added in extra corn acres farmers planted due to the higher prices from the mandate. Third, There are hundreds of assumptions and estimates buried in all the comparisons because some factors just aren't known or can even be measured exactly. Do we assume wind intensity from historical trends or current data for instance? Fourth, these computations have to make projections of the future like interest rates or human patterns of consumption of energy. Finally, every factor is influenced by every other factor in a constantly changing environment. This means sophisticated and enormous computer models about which we all have our own opinions. Above all, regardless of the accuracy of any comparison, the politics and economics of energy production override meticulous research if a researcher works for a particular industry, they can carefully line up the variables to arrive at more desirable results. The result is, like you, many of us wonder about claims of greenness or comparisons. But, for what it's worth, most calculations show renewable sources like wind, solar, and hydro are much greener than fossil fuels, even after all possible ancillary costs. Use your smartphone to access
1: this official response to that study via QR code. The Department of Energy's Argonne National Laboratory has reviewed the research and found what they call are some major flaws in its modeling and assumptions. They've even written a rebuttal or two. As John said, scientists don't always agree. Up next, a battle in the Bronx as Joey Chestnut goes head-to-head with some animal activists while chasing the hot dog world record. We end today with a look at farming and food from around the world. Dutch farmers are staging large protests in the country against government plans that may require them to use less fertilizer and reduce livestock. The farmers have used their tractors to block traffic on busy roads, Amsterdam's airport and major supermarket distribution hubs. Last month, the government introduced targets to reduce nitrogen compounds by the year 2030. It says reductions are necessary to cut emissions from farm animal manure and from the use of ammonia fertilizer. It estimates a 30% cut in the number of livestock is needed. Now, Many farmers argue the goals are poorly conceived and unfair. In Italy, the country declaring a state of emergency in five northern states. The region has been hit by its worst drought in 70 years. The effects can be seen most dramatically at the River Po. It is the main artery that cuts through Italy's heartland, known for its agricultural products, including its famed Parmesan cheese. And to a world food event, the Nathan's Famous Fourth of July Hot Dog Eating Contest on Monday. Joey Jaws Chestnut gobbled his way to a 15th win, managing to down 63 hot dogs and buns in just 10 minutes. That was off record pace, partly because of this, an animal activist wearing a Darth Vader mask momentarily disrupted the competition by rushing the stage. Chestnut put the protester in a brief chokehold before contest officials escorted them away. Now the scene didn't even seem to rattle Chestnut on his way to victory. Women's record holder Mickey Sudo took the women's title, downing 40 hot dogs and buns to notch her eighth victory. And check out the cuteness we found on Twitter. Matt Dalt sharing a picture of his daughter reading the latest edition of Farm Journal featuring U.S. Farm Report's very own John Phipps. He says this is how their bedtime reading routine starts. The latest edition of Farm Journal is in mailboxes right now. If you have a picture or a video you'd like to send in, send that to mailbag at usfarmreport.com or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. From all of us here at U.S. Farm Report, I'm Clinton Griffiths, Tyne Morgan. We'll be back next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Thanks for watching, have a great weekend. U.S. Farm
0: Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.